0: Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, brought to you by General Motors. Today is Sunday, March 14th, and we're looking back at the same week last year, the week America changed. This is the final episode of our COVID-19 Decision Maker series, conversations about some of the most consequential decisions made this time last year. Today, we talked to Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines. He was president of United at the time, in the midst of taking over the top job as the pandemic escalated. He also was in position of not just making big decisions, but of responding to the big decisions of others, such as the European travel ban. Airlines at the time were between a rock and a hard place with America locking down. The government had closed certain routes, customer cancellations came at an unprecedented rate, and tens of thousands of secure jobs were suddenly at risk. All the while, airlines were also being asked to transport medical workers to coronavirus hotspots. Scott Kirby tells us that he usually sleeps very well at night, but not that week. We learn what was happening behind the scenes in 15 seconds. We're joined now by United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby. Scott, when did you begin to realize how significant COVID-19 could be?
1: Well, I first started reading about COVID-19, actually in December of 2019. But when it really hit me that the genie was out of the bottle and this was going to become a global pandemic, uh, was at the very beginning of March uh, on the weekend when COVID showed up in Italy. I called our chief financial officer on that Sunday uh, we had, in the first week of March, a large management meeting of 5,000 people in Chicago, and rather than sit in the audience during that management meeting, I was actually in a back room having a parade of people come through, and I would start with the speech of, nobody realizes it yet, but this is going to be a global pandemic, and it is already all around the world. Picture the room and backstage at the McCormick Center in Chicago. That was our war room as we had a management conference going on outside. and. People came in and went through a mix of uh, emotions of either shock, I could also see an awful lot of skepticism, like, there's no way this is gonna be right. You're overreacting, this can't be that big a deal because no one else seems that worried about it yet. And the pushback we were getting from Washington was, well, every other airline that we've talked to says this is not that big a deal. Um, and what we were saying is, I hear you. hold on a couple of weeks and let's see what people think. By the time we were at this point a year ago, we actually had done a bridge financing deal for $2 billion and we'd started all of the preparations for a really severe pandemic. And that starting early actually has really helped us uh, get through the crisis better. After the NBA shut down and the whole world shut down, you know, it was a turning point for our team and everyone said, wow. We knew what was coming ahead of everyone else, and that's a huge advantage for us. And it was, in a way, what was distressing, it was also a point of pride because we were ahead of it. Our most dire planning scenario that we ever planned for, which we started the first week of March, was, this, was if the airspace is closed and if there is no government support, we will have to shut down the entire airline. We had predicted that European travel was inevitably going to get shut down, and it was just a matter of when. And you know, so it wasn't a surprise. We also anticipated that there was a good chance that domestic travel was gonna get shut down, mostly because we thought the air traffic control system, you know, as, as COVID would pop up in one control tower or one facility, those were getting closed, you know, in a, in a domino fashion. And the air traffic control system you know, I think was within, was very close to the level where we simply weren't going to be able to keep flying. That was the week where I had a sleepless night uh, because, you know, going to bed thinking about I could be put into a position where I got no choice uh, but to shut down the airline and essentially temporarily furlough 100% of the employees. You know, really it really was the first time in my life that I had a week of sleepless nights contemplating such a drastic decision what I really felt was intensity more than anything else. Um, you know, it was, we see the iceberg ahead, unlike the Titanic that had already hit it. We see the iceberg, we think we have time to turn, but we gotta turn now. The emotional time for me became when I realized that the shutdown was gonna be as dramatic as it was, because uh, I didn't anticipate a full shutdown. And if that stayed intact, for a long time, and if there wasn't any government support, realizing what it would mean for all the people of United Airlines. And I joke, you know, I sleep eight and a half to nine hours a night, and I joke when people say, what keeps you up at night? Absolutely nothing. Um, And I literally really had probably the only week of my life where I can remember having sleepless nights um, in the week thinking about what that would mean for furloughs for the people of United uh, if we couldn't do something um, to, to turn it around. We were in direct contact with the, the CDC and I've gained I've had a number of calls he's been gracious at the time dr. Setron he's the number two um, at the, the CDC and uh, and gotten to have a lot of respect for him as we've gone through this but more than anything I was reading I'm an avid reader I read about three hours a day in normal circumstances that have nothing to do with work I'm kind of a science geek to start with and and everything I could find and, and I told people, particularly by the time we got to April, because we had such a different view on what how long it was going to take. I would wake up every morning. The first thing I would do before I read email or anything was look at the covid statistics and the data. And then I would just try to convince myself that everyone else's opinion must be right because everyone else had such a different opinion. And I was wrong, but I could never convince myself that the data supported this view that this is gonna be over by Easter, and then that this is gonna be over by June, and this will be over by the end of the summer, and once we're into the winter, it won't be, I, I just could never
0: convince myself. During the lockdown, the number of passengers obviously dropped off, but you were still flying. What were those days like? We were bringing people from all over the country
1: to New York and New Jersey at that point in time. We were carrying medical equipment. Basically, all we had on our airplanes were people that were responding to COVID. The FAA was absolutely in the right place that each of us, both us and the FAA, had to do everything possible to keep the system up and running because we were a huge part of the response. All of a sudden, if you stopped all these medical professionals and equipment from getting to New York, New Jersey, what was that going to potentially mean? So we did talk about it, but we agreed that you know it was a absolute last resort. There were a lot of calls that were happening. And uh, at, the, at the beginning of March was before we'd all started doing Zoom calls and Teams meetings. I was actually logging about on my Fitbit over 30,000 steps a day for several weeks in a row because I would do calls and like, I guess, nervous energy. Just walk around the neighborhood. The number one thing we talked about, really, was safety and health. We were the first to require masks on board. And at the time, that was controversial. Uh, I got a lot of hate mail. Within a few weeks, everyone else had started to do it. We're still are running our auxiliary power units uh, to provide the robust
0: airflow the whole time you're on an airplane. So not just after the plane is in the air. What was the hardest decision you had to make during that time? For sure, the toughest decision
1: you had to make was getting ready to, to furlough employees. And, you know, something I never thought I would have to do. We prepared for 9-11 like event, which is by far the worst financial crisis that happened in the history of aviation. We prepared for that and said, you know, no impact. We don't have to fertile anyone. Nothing really has to change. Uh, but after 9-11, the first month after 9-11, our revenues were down 40 percent. And by within six months, they were down about 10 percent. And that was the worst crisis in history. After this event, revenues were down 98 and percent. And here we are a year later and they're still down 65 percent. And the thought of, you know, we were doing so well at United, hitting on all cylinders, we were growing, we were hiring people. Uh, you know, the hardest thing for me to think about was hurtling people. But the hardest thing that I've had to do is write letters to the families of everyone, every United employee that lost their life to COVID. And I've personally written a letter to every single one of them. And the first time I was told that we had lost someone in, in Newark, I remember it. It was in March, and you know we had a number of employees on ventilators. Uh, you know we have such a big employment base in New Jersey, and, and I asked you know if I could just get the the address for the family and get some cards you know to send condolence notes to them, and it just seemed like the right thing to do. It never occurred to me to do anything else when I first heard about it, and then of course I just I just continued to do it. I'm a military veteran, so perhaps that's why I also try to force myself and i think i don't think i could do it any other way to also feel what i'm writing you know it's not just writing to put myself as much as is possible in the shoes of the people that are going to get those condolence notes because if you do that if you feel that it makes a difference in the decisions you make it's been a few weeks since i've had to do it uh, and i hope and pray that i won't have to do it again uh, but it is for sure the hardest thing that i've done
0: scott do you think that the aviation industry will be permanently changed by this experience?
1: I think there's all kinds of things that will uh, that will permanently be changed about aviation and about all, everything in the world. Um, you know, one of the more obvious is the importance of safety, health, cleanliness um, are all going to be higher profile. It's impossible today to pretend that we are not part of a global community, that we are not all connected, and that anything that happens anywhere in the world is going to affect
0: us. Scott Kirby, thank you so much for joining us. In 15 seconds, we take stock of what we learned while making this series. Welcome back to the final part of our final episode of this series. As we reflect back on how this one week in March changed our lives, it's honestly been kind of hard to recreate just how much was happening all at once. But one clip from March 14th, 2020 from NBC Nightly News gets at how much things were changing and how fast. Also tonight, visitors to nursing homes no longer allowed. All cruise ships halted from American ports as some hospitals begin rationing supplies. And across the country, long lines to get tested. Three new countries shutting down, France, Spain, and Israel, closing almost all businesses as their coronavirus cases spike. Bars, restaurants, and theaters closed. Oh, that's not all. It goes on. Empty store shelves nationwide, what businesses are doing to boost supplies and what you need for home. The week was just relentless, overwhelming, even in hindsight. It didn't have to be like this, though. One theme that's emerged across the series is that many of the decision makers outside of government knew a lot more, a lot earlier than did most of the American public. We've heard throughout this week that even though there were lots of unknowns about the virus... There were early indicators about how serious it could be and that there were different, better ways the country could have handled its response. That week in March could have gone very differently. And if it had, the whole year might've been different as well. Big thanks for listening and to the team behind this series. This episode was produced by Naomi Shaven, Tim Shovers, Amy Padula, Alice Wilder, and Alex Sugiora. Research and fact-checking by Oriana Gonzalez. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. Have a great National Pie Day. The number, not the food. And we'll be back Tuesday with another Axios Recap.